right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right. Welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. We've got a great panel. We're going to be talking a lot about uh, uh, heat-related injuries and, and treatments associated with that. Remember, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, go out to uh, corephysicaltherapy.com. Definitely have answers out there. What we're going to do right now is we're going to go around the table, do a little intro. We're going to start with Dr. Chase. Dr. Chase, how are you? We're doing well here in Knoxville, Tennessee. How are you, sir? Well, thank you. Dr. Rick never asked me how I'm doing. He just goes right into it. All right. Give us a little background on who you are there, Dr. Chase. Uh, I am a primary care sports medicine physician. I work for the uh, Tennessee Orthopedic Clinics here in Knoxville, Tennessee, and across East Tennessee. Um, I did my training at the University of Kentucky and University of Tennessee, and then completed a sports medicine fellowship at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina. And I have uh, been practicing for, um, I guess, about uh, almost 10 years now. I've been with the Tennessee Orthopedic Clinics for three of those years. Are you a Wildcat or a Vol? Or, or a Gamecock from South Carolina. Or I, a I'm Gamecock. A bit, right, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm a bit of all three, truly. God, you're such a politician. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> all right, Nate, give us a little 411 on who you are and why you're such an incredible PT. Ah, uh, perfect. Yes. Uh, I got my uh, PT degree in uh, University of Tennessee Health Science Center in 2013. I've been a physical therapist for seven years, and four of those have been with core physical therapy. And currently, I am treating at our core clinics in Morristown and White Pine, Tennessee. I like the state of Tennessee. All right, Dr. Rick. They're all warmed up, ready to go. Start peppering them with uh, hard questions. <laughs> you got it. So, uh, everybody, I'm Dr. Rick Lehman from St. Louis, medical director at the U.S. Center for Sports Medicine. And tonight we're going to be talking about heat illness, which as a sports orthopedist or a sports primary care, you're going to see, you're going to treat, and, and it's one of the scariest things you're ever going to see and one of the scariest things you're ever going to treat especially on a field or a marathon course, et cetera. So one of the few things that I would say, other than maybe transient quadriplegia, head injury in football, that makes me nervous is dragging somebody off a marathon course who's in full-on heat illness. So before we get started, um, Dr. Chase, let's discuss just the scope, the temperatures, kind of what, you know, it's 20 degrees out in the winter. We're not seeing heat illness. So what, what constitutes heat illness? And, and what are we looking for temperature-wise, and what are we looking for humidity-wise? Sure. So, so heat illness runs a continuum of symptoms. It uh, can, can be as simple as symptoms of dehydration on to um, cramps, uh, then on to uh, more body temperature changes that, that elevate, and then on to neurological symptoms with uh, heat exhaustion. And what, what we need to watch for are any levels of high humidity and high temperature. Um, 
I have seen heat illness occur in what would be considered normal temperatures. Um, but certainly when, when relative humidity exceeds about 50% um, and when the temperatures start to um, increase above the 90 degree range, we start getting more concerned. Uh, but I always caution um, uh, other physicians, athletic trainers, coaches, parents, players, everyone, to don't, don't be consumed by the numbers. Uh, really, heat illness is diagnosed more based on clinical signs and symptoms rather than just hard and fast numbers. And, and, and if we were going to pick some sports that you would be concerned about, just, just not temperature, but obviously football with gear, et cetera, what sports do you normally, I mean, you probably cover a lot of events. What, what sports would you be the most concerned about heat illness? So certainly any outdoor events in a non-climate controlled environment, uh, indoor sports with, with uh, climate control are at much less risk, uh, but still can occur. Um, so as you said, uh, football and the other thing to consider is not only the outdoor arena, but gear that the athlete has to wear. So certainly football kind of um, it comes to the top of the list. But lacrosse uh, is, is certainly a high-risk sport given that uh, uh, lots of gear is worn. But certainly soccer or uh, other, other outdoor sports, uh, baseball, uh, we, we can see this in any sport. And, and, and one of the things we have here is we have, a, I wouldn't say a famous, but a pretty well-known marathon. And, yes. and in covering the marathoners, you know, it always makes me nervous. Um, so, so if, if we're going to talk about heat illness, let's, let's discuss maybe the first signs and symptoms to look for, because obviously catching it early is a lot easier than catching it late. Uh, you're, you're right. And uh, one thing I didn't mention there was uh, another risk factor there, not only equipment, but du duration of exercise. And so again, as you mentioned, marathoners, or again, going back to the soccer athletes who play numerous minutes uh, at one time, uh, I personally have not covered a whole lot of large events such as marathons, only one or two in my career. Uh, most of my career has been spent more at the high school level, uh, those sort of sports, but you're exactly right. Marathons and so forth are at, at, at extremely high risk. But, but as far as uh, uh, th things to look for re regarding symptoms, um, you, the first things you're gonna typically uh, see are, are just the symptoms of dehydration. Uh, the patient being uh, thirsty, having a dry mouth, uh, maybe some headache, mild dizziness. And, and Nate, real quick, tell us, you know, you have an athlete, he's going to run a marathon, he's going to play in a football game, he's going to go to football practice two a days or whatever. What are you going to tell that athlete? What, what are they, how, how do they figure out how to hydrate, what kind of things to drink? How do they prevent this from happening, knowing that they're going to go play whatever sport they're going to play? Well, I think, you know, depending on where you're at, what type of equipment you had, like Dr. Uh, Chase said, um, more equipment is going to not get, not let you sweat as often. So you need to look into those factors. The more you sweat with increased exercise, you're going to lose the electrolyte balance. So a lot of times what you definitely want to do is be acclimated to the heat for one. Um, those are some things that you can kind of look at too, to where you want to at least be, I don't know, around two weeks kind of in there, you'll start to see before they get to two days or anything along those lines, able to go like 60 to 90 minutes. Um, to be able to do that. So you're getting acclimated to the temperature at first. Uh, when you start to sweat and do things like that, we're also looking at hydration levels as well. 
and electrolyte depletion. So normally what we're kind of looking at from a hydration standpoint is we're looking to keep it pretty good, eight ounces every 20 minutes or so, and then probably around you know, 32 ounces every hour, not to exceed a certain amount because you drink too much, you're going to lose too much electrolytes, AKA sodium. Uh, so one of those things that we tend to kind of tell our athletes is we definitely want to make sure they're hydrated. We want to make sure they're acclimated to the temperatures that they're going to be going into. They're wearing r right equipment. And then we also want to make sure that we're also giving them the time and rest that they need, uh, especially for those uh, moments to be more hydrated in the heat area. And a lot of times what you'll see is, especially talking with any coaches, you can also look at the times of day, uh, like Dr. Wilson, Dr. Chase was saying, uh, with increased humidity and also increased temperature that usually happens in the middle part of the day. So doing uh, a sporting event or some type of practice, you know, to get acclimated is better to do in early morning and also later in the day. So, so I, I think you brought up a couple really good points, which, which I think we should pivot on a little bit. So let's, let's talk about hyponatremia. And I'm going to ask both you guys to explain hyponatremia to me a little bit, how you get it, how you prevent it, what it is, what are the symptoms? Nate, why don't you start, then we'll let uh, Dr. Wilson give us a ride. Okay. So as we're exercising and using our muscles and everything along these lines, we actually have a sodium potassium pump, which helps us contract everything here. Uh, when we're using our muscles for a long period of time, especially in heated exposure, we actually increase heat, okay, with our body. Therefore, we can actually use our muscle. We get fatigued. We have to have energy for that. So that can actually lead to what we like to call um, cramping, or you can have those heat cramps or exercise-associated cramps. Um, a lot of time that is from dehydration and electrolyte uh, balance issues. The hyponatremia is when we sweat, we lose those certain types of electrolytes, and it can lead to that contraction system being kind of uh, dysfunction, uh, leading to dysfunction so it's not contracting correctly. Um, so, so, Dr. Wilson, tell us about how overhydrating kind of messes us up sometimes. You know, you're going to drink your ounces, you want to stay hydrated, you think you're doing everything right, and then and, and, and explain hyponatremia to us, how, how it presents and, and, and kind of how you get it. Sure. So, as, as Nate was saying, and as we sweat, we, we lose different electrolytes in our sweat, but uh, sodium particularly is, is lost. And so... When, when replacing those electrolytes, it is important, I'm sorry, replacing fluid, it's also important to replace electrolytes. If, if you drink only water, um, then the, when you have lost the sodium from your body, your body becomes deficient in that sodium. You're, you're filling the, the tank with only water and not enough electrolytes. And so then what uh, can, can happen physiologically is um, the, the body starts to retain more of that water in areas where it shouldn't. Uh, it, it starts to retain water in uh, some brain cells, too much water and too, too little sodium. Same thing can happen in the lungs. And so then the, the brain tissue, uh, lung tissue can, can become swollen uh, or edematous. Uh, we call it cerebral edema in the brain. We call it pulmonary edema in the, uh, in the lungs. 
And so then that clearly that can lead to a dysfunction of those organs. Uh, you know, when the, so the symptoms, uh, the severe symptoms um, are, are as far as neurological symptoms would be uh, confusion, dizziness, headache, and then on to loss of consciousness and, and coma. Um, the, the lung symptoms uh, would uh, be manifest as shortness of breath uh, or, or fast breathing and on to sometimes cough and, and then respiratory failure if, uh, if, if left untreated. Uh, and, and, and so real quick, how do we avoid that? Do we add electrolytes to what we're drinking or how do we stop this hyponatremia? Because you see these athletes, you know, they're drinking a cup and they're drinking tons and tons. And as you said, you don't want to drink just plain water. So, so how, do we, how do we avoid, because people die of hyponatremia, how do we avoid dying of hyponatremia? You certainly have to replace the electrolytes with the fluid. And so the, the easiest way typically to do that is, is with uh, just electrolyte-containing beverages, uh, such, such as sports drinks. Um, some people will simply add uh, salt uh, to, to the drinking water. Uh, it's a little less palatable than, than the sports drinks. And research has shown that, uh, especially uh, adole- you know, pediatric and adolescent athletes, uh, are able to replenish uh, their their fluid and electrolyte losses with sweetened beverages better, uh, and so that's where the uh, the sports drinks come in. Certainly, if it gets severe uh, to the point of manifesting those symptoms that we just talked about, then that's going to require um, emergency department and probably hospitalization and, and replacing those fluids with IV fluids that, that contain the proper amount of, of sodium and saline. Now that was awesome. That was really awesome. So let's get back just a little bit to, to some of the things Nate was talking about and, and, and explain to me heat cramps, Dr. Wilson. What, how does that work? What, what happens? So uh, as Nate was talking about, uh, that, that is one of the things that we'll see as, as we lose um, electrolytes. And, and heat cramps are, are more common in people who um, sweat more and, and who lose lots of sodium in their sweat. Uh, now, sweating is obviously imperative to cooling of the body, uh, but some people sweat excessive amounts and some people will exce- sweat excessive amounts of sodium in their sweat. Um, the, certainly, you can, can get very technical and, and high-level care. And, and um, when I was doing my fellowship at the collegiate level, uh, taking care of collegiate-level athletes, sometimes we sent patients for electrolyte testing to, to analyze their sweat. Uh, but no, that's, that's not routinely available for m- most athletes. Um, but, but certainly the people who sweat a lot uh, or uh, the, the, the poor man's test for sodium in their sweat is, you know, how, much, uh, how many sweat rings do they have around their collar? <laughs> Those little white lines after the sweat dries. Uh, so people who, who sweat a lot or lose more sodium in their, their sweat are, are more at risk. And basically that muscle tissue uh, then become, basically needs the sodium in order to uh, carry its signal from muscle to muscle, uh, well, from the nerve to the muscle. And if um, the, the sodium is not there, then uh, dysfunction results and the muscle will go into spasm or cramp. Um, and it's usually pretty, it involves, uh, the kind of these repetitive or, or continuous muscle, you know, cramping contractions of the muscle, uh, and it's associated with pretty severe pain for, for many athletes. That's excellent. That's excellent. So, so Nate, is there any way to, uh, other than hydrating, stretching, is there anything you guys do in anticipation of a guy who's a cramper? I mean, we see these athletes, some of them have key related cramps, some of them just 
cramps. So, so if, if you've got an athlete, I, I, I've got a, uh, one of the reps, and he was a college quarterback, and he, he always talks about how bad he used to cramp. Is there anything we can do for that, Nate, to prevent that? Or how do we treat that other than hydration, electrolytes, staying, staying ahead of the game a little bit in, in, in your uh, sodium-potassium balance? How, how do we treat those cramps? Yeah, it's kind of one of those things outside of looking at the electrolytes. Once they're, once they're replenished, you know, the biggest thing why it happens is that a lot of that happens with muscular fatigue. So what do we need to do? We need to go in and figure out where they're getting this. A lot of those cramps occur in the big muscles, especially around the abdomen, the thighs, and, of course, the calves. Uh, I see the calves a lot. Uh, one of the things we definitely want to focus on, we want to build the muscular endurance. We want to make sure that it's contracting properly. We want to make sure that we're building the endurance of the tissue. And that's going to be regulated pretty much on sports-specific training um, from quick turns, uh, eccentric loading, things along those lines to build it up. Eccentric loading is going to be key to doing that because that's going to build more muscle tissue. Um, and then again, I hate to say it, but we're just trying to get into this acclimatization of heat and a lot of that is going to be one of those things to where you'll start to see some people start to talk about heat shock proteins okay heat shock proteins can be turned in uh, with just simple exercise uh, but they're starting to see some stuff with a lot of uh, infrared saunas and saunas in general just sitting down doing a certain number of minutes um, and that can seem to build uh and become acclimated uh, to the heat. And I think that's one of the biggest things is to prevent that fatigue, but also to get used to the weather environment that you're in, especially that hot weather. You know, I, th I think that's an important point and in, in, in both you guys have made, and that is you need to acclimate. So yeah, you want your football practices early in the morning or when the sun starts to set, you know, everybody wants to train in the middle of the day, go for the run in the middle of the day. And people listen to this, in the heat, there you go, hydrating like a good guy. Um, right. <laughs> uh, I think it's important not to train. In, in the, you need to look at your weather app and say, okay, when's the hottest part of the day? When's the humidity the hottest, the highest? When's that combination the worst? And then you want to train well before that or well after that. So let's talk about the severity. And this is kind of important, Dr. Wilson. Let's talk about this. What, what happens – if you get heat illness or heat stroke, A, how do you treat it? What can happen to you? Kind of give us the whole 911 on, on, or the 411 on, on heat illness and heat stroke and the severity of the disease. Certainly. Well, uh, as you alluded there, uh, heat stroke is going to involve 911. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh, uh, as we said before, heat illness is on a continuum. Uh, kind of starts with dehydration, can go on to heat cramps. Um, some folks would, would even kind of put another level of heat syncope or pa passing out, uh, then heat exhaustion and, and on to heat stroke. Um, heat, uh, heat exhaustion and heat stroke are certainly the two most serious uh, heat illnesses. Um, the, the heat exhaustion is, is a, uh, a significant medical condition, and, and then heat stroke is a true medical emergency. Um, the... Um, Ways to recognize this are, are increasing symptoms. Uh, heat exhaustion uh, will typically manifest in the patient who is, is exercising for longer periods of time in the, in the heat. Uh, they will uh, many times have profuse amounts of sweating. Uh, sometimes they will uh, start to have headache, nausea, vomiting, 
cramps, um, and sometimes they'll start to have some skin color changes, become pale, um, and again, can, can faint. Um, the, the treatment for that is, is rapid cooling. Um, and, and so what, what needs to be done is the patient needs to be removed from the hot environment, placed in a cool environment, um, preferably indoors in a truly climate controlled environment, but at least in the shade, possibly with some fans. Um, any extra equipment and clothing that can be removed should be removed. Um, if the patient is not, uh, you know, acutely vomiting, that they should be given uh, fluids to, to replace uh, lost fluids and electrolytes. Which, and again, the beverages should be cool if possible so that the, it can help promote the cooling. Uh, and what you should see with heat exhaustion is, is a fairly rapid improvement in symptoms. Uh, and as long as the athlete responds to that uh, and does exhibit the, the rapid improvement, then the measures can just simply be continued. The athlete would rest for at least a day. Uh, I prefer more, but at least a day from, from any sort of um, exertional activity. And then they are uh, you know, kind of allowed to return to sport under some protocols. Um, the... If, if the patient does not respond quickly and progresses on to uh, more uh, more significant uh, neurological symptoms, such as uh, loss of consciousness um, or uh, seizure type activity, convulsions, uh, they become combative. That 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 progression onto the more serious neurological symptoms is, is based on the definition for heat stroke. Now, in Increase in internal core body temperature is, is usually inherent to that. But as I said before, I always caution folks, don't, don't get caught up on, on the numbers. Uh, just because you don't see a uh, you know, rectal internal core temperature above 102, 104, 105, however you want to define that, don't, don't say this patient does not have exer you know, exertional heat stroke simply based on that if they do have the neurological symptoms. And again, the treatment of... Uh, exertional heat stroke is is rapid cooling and it needs to be taken to the next level not only removing the patient from the environment and providing a cool environment that patient needs to be rapidly cooled in a in a cold tub uh filled with with ice water uh temperature of the ice water should be around, at least around around 35 degrees fahrenheit uh the water should be circulated so that the the warmer water uh next to the body is replaced with cool water continuously uh, certainly that gives the best outcome. The patient should be cooled um, until their, their core temperature uh, is, is decreased to about 101, 102 degrees, um, and, and then transported, to, uh, transported by emergency medical personnel to an emergency department for further evaluation. That's excellent. So, so what happens when, when the athlete quits sweating? I mean, you say, well, they're sweating, they're sweating, they're sweating. Well, should we be alerted when they when they stop sweating? Y yes, correct, and that, that's one thing I, I, I kind of glossed over there. I apologize. Uh, yes, so uh, again, in the heat exhaustion, many time, most of the time, that the athlete is is sweating profusely, and in, in many cases, uh, when, when the athlete goes on to um, heat stroke because the body's cooling mechanisms have failed at that point and there's true neurologic dysfunction, the sweating stops now. Again, it, 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 even if, if the patient is, is still sweating and they have those neurological symptoms, I would still treat them for heat stroke, but you're correct. Uh, the, the cessation of sweating in a hot environment is a, is a clear red flag. And I, th and I think that's something, you know, 
guys like yourself and myself have to look out for because you say, well, he's not really sweating. Well, that, things have gotten worse. Things didn't get any better. Right. Um, so so you, you put him in a cold tub. Uh, do you start an IV? Do you give him any medicine? Kind of kind of walk us through. Here I am. I'm my first marathon, my first football game. You know, my 6'6", 25-pound lineman. He's dizzy. He's throwing up. He comes to the sidelines. Coach says, hey, go back in there. We need you. So walk me through the cold tub and, and treatment. Um, dehydrate. Kind of give, give us the whole care and treatment from, from there. Sure. The, again, the first step is, is the rapid cooling. So getting them uh, out of their uh, gear and clothing um, and into that cold tub is, is the first goal. Um, establishing some sort of internal core temperature uh, monitoring is, is also important. Uh, hopefully the, the facility where, where you're covering uh, has the ability to, to monitor rectal temperature. Uh, that, that is, is very important. Um, and, and then following that, um, basically you're, you're watching for the neurological symptoms uh, to, to improve. And at that point, they, they can be transported. Uh, once, once the neurological symptoms improve, uh, they've regained uh, consciousness and, and good neurological function and their core temperature is, is below at least 102. Uh, I prefer to see it, uh, you know, 100, 101 at least. Um, then, then the patient can be transported by ambulance to, to an emergency department. Now, the, the, the big problem is transporting too early. Um, th th there have been numerous studies that have shown poor outcomes and increased risk of death uh, by simply putting someone in the back of an ambulance and transporting them 15 or 20 minutes down the road to the hospital because you cannot cool an, ad an athlete adequately in the back of an ambulance, and most emergency departments are, are not set up to adequately cool them either. Um, you mentioned other treatments. Uh, certainly, um, uh, IV fluids are, are going to be inherent to this, and if, if those uh, fluids can be uh, administered uh, that, that are relatively cooler than the body temperature, that, that, that's helpful. Uh, some internal cooling can take place. Um, Sometimes uh, internal um, cold water lavage of, uh, of the stomach can, can be uh, utilized. But certainly, if, hopefully, the, the athlete starts to regain consciousness and, and can be uh, treated then with, with just oral, uh, uh, simply sipping and uh, consuming uh, cold fluids on their own. Um, once the, the athlete uh, arrives at the emergency department, those certain laboratory testing for um, uh, different le electrolyte panels, kidney function, uh, muscle enzymes, testing urine, those sort of things, looking for other organ damage that, that needs to be treated specifically. And that's when then you get into administering different fluids, uh, different types of fluids, uh, can, can certainly involve some medications at some point. And um, again, it's, it's, it's the different levels of care based on how well the athlete is responding and what, what level of, or well, in what setting of care you are, if you're the treating physician in, in the field versus uh, at the uh, at the facility. That's awesome. That's just totally awesome. And, and, and so what is the, are there, are there any sequelae? You have an episode of heat illness. Um, you recover. You check their electrolytes. We're big on weighing before and after practice just to see what their insensible losses are. So it, after that, um, do we see sequelae? Is there is there a problem? You know, everyone talks about post COVID myocarditis. Is there is there a post 
heat illness issue or we just go back on our merry way and we're fine? What, what, what can happen or what does happen after you've gone through about of this? So certainly, as, as with many injuries, uh, one injury begets another. And so you're, the, the athlete who's had heat illness is more likely to experience heat illness again in the future. Um, and so th they are more sensitive uh, to temperatures typically. Um, and, and they can progress on from the milder forms of heat illness to the more severe form, forms of heat illness like heat stroke more rapidly than, than another person. Um, and again, it depends on what level of, of injury they have. If, if someone has had a heat stroke uh, and has had, as we call it, end organ damage, damage to the brain tissue or damage to the lungs or the heart or to the muscle tissue, um, then that uh, or the kidneys, then that, that patient is, is can have permanent uh, kidney dysfunction, uh, can have uh, permanent uh, neurological dysfunction, can have um, uh, cardiac problems, abnormal heart rhythms, things of that sort that, that can persist for a lifetime. Uh, but, but most athletes, um, if, if treated properly and, and, uh, can make a good recovery and, and be returned to their sport, uh, with, with precautions and in a very slow fashion, uh, in order, and in doing so reacclimate them as, as Nate has alluded to many times, acclimatization is very important and it's even more it's important to help prevent the heat illness and it's even more important in helping to helping that athlete return to their sport that was great that was truly great thank you so nate tell us give, give us a little heads up on gear like should we wear heavy cotton shirts we're out football practice we're out running a marathon or we're playing soccer what, what kind of gear specifically can help an athlete in terms of lightness or wicking or kind of, kind of, kind of what should we be wearing if we have a predisposition or it's 110 degrees out and we're at Hayward field in Portland and it's just a, a full on nightmare because it's so hot. What, what, what should we do? Yeah, I definitely would focus on clothes that definitely have a certain breathability to them. Um, a lot of times with the wicking, um, there's kind of things on and off with that, how it can actually trap in the heat because the weight is actually on the shirt. So it doesn't evaporate properly. So that's kind of gone into like a little bit more of dry fit or anything along those lines. Uh, but like I said, we want to maximize the breathability. We want to increase the evaporation and let the sweat that we're using so our body can maintain that homeostasis of thermoregulation. That's excellent. So last question, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see what we, what we didn't talk about or what we need to talk about. But does weight predispose you to heat illness or can it happen to anybody? Is there a, a, a gender discrepancy? Um, is there an age discrepancy? Who, who gets heat illness or do we know? Good question. Certainly it's, it's an, uh, a condition that can affect anyone, but uh, commonly uh, associated risk factors would certainly be people who have a higher body mass index or, or who are overweight. Um, people who, uh, younger athletes, uh, because they have different, they sweat less. They don't have as, as advanced thermoregulation of their body as older, uh, either older adolescent or adult athletes have. Uh, so the younger athletes are at higher risk. Um, people who have, again, had heat illness before are at higher risk. Um, 
people who push themselves a little too hard uh, and, and don't want to uh, to show weakness. Uh, the kind of the overzealous athletes are <laughs> those folks are certainly at risk as well. Um, the uh, you mentioned gender. I, I, I don't think I'm aware of a particular uh, gender predisposition one way or the other. Um, but but certainly, as, as we said, anyone can can experience heat illness. Great. Uh, and, and I think that's important for for athletes in general to look for that. You know, you see that big lineman and he's got his pads on. And and, you know, I, I know he's covering lots and lots of football at every level, uh, even the NFL level. I'm always looking at the linemen because I just know they're going to get a little dizzy. They may come over a little sick to their stomach. You know, they don't want to show any weakness. So they're, they're going to play through it. And that just never works. So you guys, first of all, I just want to say this, this is informative. And I think every trainer, every physical therapist should listen to this podcast because uh, Dr. Wilson, Nate, you guys were, were phenomenal. Is there anything we should have talked about that we didn't? And is there anything you guys want to add? And I'll go to you first, Nate, and then uh, we'll ask Dr. Wilson to wrap it up. Um. You know, we, I don't think we really talked about uh, rhabdomyolysis uh, to where we could kind of bring that in. That was something that we kind of missed that, uh, you know, sometimes that can be caused with a little bit of the heat illness, um, but definitely can be more exercise induced. Uh, a lot of times we have heard that happen with CrossFit, but it could happen with anything uh, that people aren't used to. And again, I keep reiterating things that you aren't acclimated to the more you do them too soon the higher level of injury that you might have. So when we start to go into the rhabdomyolysis, that's just a, you work too hard. Uh, you can't have the energy expenditure. And technically what happens is it, the muscle tissue breaks down. Uh, the cell mem membrane breaks down. And what happens is the, the, the myocytes, which is the part of the muscle cells, my, myoglobin forms. And then essentially what that does is that gets into the bloodstream and then that can go directly to the kidneys. Um, and then we can have, uh, renal failure, acute renal failure. Uh, those are some things that we need to kind of look at from a standpoint of not only, um, high exercise intensity, but also kind of rolling in with heat illness as well, because these high temperatures and the body, it's trying to thermoregulate everything. And essentially what happens is that's just an effect of how, the body is trying to regulate things and it starts to break things down when this temperature gets so high. That's why when we were talking about Dr. Chase, Dr. Wilson here, when, when you have that heat exhaustion, when you start getting into that heat stroke, it is imperative that we immediately try to get that body temperature down. And that way you can reduce the effects of what we just like to call rhabdo. Uh, it's a little bit easier instead of saying the whole thing uh, there for you. Uh, but you know, the combination of a heat stroke and rando, okay, that is something that can kind of be caused. And those are the things that we try to prevent. Those are, those are the big things that we're trying to prevent. And that's going to help us not lead to these longer term things uh, neurologically with the CNS or any type of muscular system that we might have kind of rolling on. And we definitely want to keep it down. So it's not a systemic. And, and, and along those lines, Dr. Wilson, tell us about rabdo, tell us lab tests and, Tell us how it presents. Um, I think that was a very good explanation, and it's something we're all going to see. We all do see. And tell us who's predisposed to that. Certainly. So, so as, as Nate would mention there, rhabdomyolysis is uh, basically the breakdown of muscle cells, and, and we typically see it in, in a couple of settings. Um, it, it, well, more than a couple technically, but 
uh, at least in the sports world, certainly we, we will see it with um, significant overuse of muscles, um, you know, exercising beyond one's capability. Um, and, and then the heat illness certainly predisposes it. Uh, someone to developing rhabdomyolysis. It can certainly be seen in other settings like crush injuries and so forth, but uh, in the sports world, it's typically the overexertion uh, or the, the heat illness that, that will lead to rhabdomyolysis. Um, in what, what do we typically see? What sort of symptoms do, do those patients have? Uh, they will have significant muscle pain. Uh, and this is not a cramp. Um, you know, a cramp is very very acute, very quick in onset. Many times you can see the muscle cramped up uh, or, or at least be able to palpate the muscle and feel that it is, is in spasm. Uh, with with rhabdomyolysis, it's more of a slower onset of muscle pain that doesn't go away. Uh, it, it persists despite stretching, hydration, that sort of thing. And to, to physical exam, it may be normal. Uh, now, sometimes you will notice some swelling or edema in the muscle. It may be a little tender to palpation, but it's not the same balled up spasm of, of a cramp. Um, and so you really need to kind of have a high index of suspicion if, if patients kind of have uh, muscle pain. Typically, it's going to be more generalized than a cramp. Cramps can certainly uh, involve more than one muscle at a time, but by and large, rhabdomyolysis is going to involve every muscle that was overutilized. Uh, and think back to a case, we, we had a, uh, an outbreak, if you will, of rhabdomyolysis uh, because of uh, an overzealous uh, spin class instructor in, in a local gym. And uh, so th those uh, patients came in with just terrible muscle pain in their thighs, uh, you know, both thighs, both calves, uh, their lower extremities, because they were cycling, you know, they're spinning. And um, uh, the, uh, goodness, I think there ended up uh, almost 20 people uh, with rhabdomyolysis, uh, certainly ended up in the ICU with acute renal failure. Thankfully, they all did okay because they were fairly healthy to start with. Um, you know, they were out there, they were people who were exercising, so that, that they all eventually did pretty well, thankfully. But it was it was quite quite severe. Um, and, but again, the, the this has to be in uh, what we're talking about the heat illness. Certainly, it, it can can come from the the overexposure to heat and so forth. As far as evaluating the patient, the uh, uh, electrolytes and, and kidney function have to be monitored very closely. And the the telltale, uh, I'm sorry, one other sign uh, that patients will many times notice, other than just the muscle pain, is dark colored urine. Uh, and it's not necessarily it could be that they're dehydrated as well. But the, the myoglobin uh, in, in, but that come, is coming from that broken down muscle cell gets into the urine and, and colors it kind of a tea colored or very dark red uh, color. Uh, some people will think they're, they have blood in their urine. Uh, matter of fact, uh, when, uh, when you run a typical urinalysis test on these patients, it, it will show that they have blood in their urine. Um, but when you look for red blood cells, there aren't any. Uh, the, the chemical test for blood is there. It's positive but there are actually no red blood cells. Um, so, so that's one lab test that we will perform and you can check, you can then actually check a myoglobin in, in the urine. Uh, but the, the big test to, to be monitoring also in addition to the kidney function is, is their total CK, muscle, one of the muscle enzymes. And um, th there are different parameters. Um, certainly uh, any elevation in their CK is concerning, um, but uh, I always, I always, 
when I see a patient like this, I always look it up to make sure and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Lehman, but I, I believe anything over about 10 to 15,000 requires hospitalization with, with IV okay. fluids. Um, there, and again, when, I'm thinking back to this, uh, this outbreak of, of Rabdo that we saw after a spin class, uh, the, uh, so the patients were coming in with, with well over 25,000, uh, 30,000 uh, CK levels. And um, so, so again, you want to establish that, you know, you hospitalize those patients, hydrate them aggressively to, to bring down that CK, uh, monitor their kidney functions. And as long as you establish a, uh, uh, an improvement in their CK levels and, uh, you know, uh, normal renal function, uh, then they can be transitioned over to oral hydration and, and then can be discharged home with, with close follow-up. And that patient should be uh, returned to their athletics or exercise very slowly. Um, I typically recommend several weeks of rest uh, before even starting uh, an exercise routine and, and then uh, very slow reacclimatization to, to their desired exercise or athletics. You know, I, I think Nate really, I think this is great because I think this is a, a maybe not heat illness per se, but certainly can be seen with heat illness. Um, I've seen it lead to dialysis in, in a couple of cases. So clearly this is, and, and you're right, the pain they experience isn't like any cramp. They, right. they are miserable. Uh, I don't mean to laugh at the, at the epidemic you guys are having in the spin class, but that it was funny. We, we, we were all scratching our heads and, and thinking, what in the world is going on? And uh, it, it actually ha happened on two instances that there was this, this initial, uh, you know, kind of uh, just several patients coming in and, and then uh, they kind of shut it down for a while. But then apparently that that uh, spin class instructor didn't get the message and, and it happened again with a few patients. And at that point, a, a local physician uh, wrote, wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper and uh, sort, sort of calling out uh, the uh, the GM and, and instructor. And it, it sort of stopped after that. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Listen, you guys have been amazing. Uh, this has been very inform informative, like I said, and this is something coaches should listen to. This is something therapists should listen to, trainers should listen to, orthopedists, primary care guys, because this was this really covered a, a tough topic, a topic we're all going to see, a topic we're all going to treat if we cover events. And, and again, people die. I mean, it, it, this is no joke. So, again, thank you for your time and your expertise. You, you guys were both phenomenal. Thank you for having us. I, I, really appreciate I, I have uh, I have one question. How much is too much from an electrolyte perspective? It, it's it can't be a hundred percent, right? Is it a sort of a ratio of water to electrolyte? What 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 does that sort of look like? It, it, it truly varies from one athlete to another. Uh, we're we're all a little bit individual, but you're right. You don't want to drink only electrolytes. You don't want to drink only water, um, and, and so. Again, and, and some athletes, if, if they have a persistent problem with heat illness or cramping and so forth, uh, they can go to, uh, there, there's the Gatorade Institute uh, for, for yeah. sweat and electrolyte testing. Um, as Dr. Levin mentioned, you know, unfortunately, people die from heat illness. And, and yeah. Corey Stringer, an NFL player, uh, mm -hmm. uh, is a prime example. And they developed the Corey Stringer Institute. Uh, to help people deal with uh, heat illness and so forth. And so, again, people who have repetitive uh, problems and you can't quite uh, get that ratio correct can go on to some of those uh, places for testing or at least for some resources. Um, but, but typically just maintaining a balance. Uh, I, I'll tell folks, uh, you know, for every 
glass, you know, two or three glasses of water, you should probably have one glass of, of uh, electrolyte containing beverage. Uh, get more specific with, with individual athletes, but maintaining a good ratio there. And uh, Nate or Dr. Lemon, if, uh, if either of you have a, a particular recommendation, certainly share that. Yeah, Dr. Lemon, did you have one? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead <laughs> Oh, you got it. I'll, I'll follow you. <laughs> uh, no, no. So I, I go by the 50-50 rule starting out. You know, I, I tell them, take whatever, your, your Gatorade and pour out half or pour out half your water and put Gatorade in. And we'll start there. Um, good athletes will, will know how much they need to replenish their electrolytes. So they'll tell you how they feel. So, you know, a triathlete will say, you know what, I got to do this and I got to do that. So you're 100% right. There's a lot athletes are all different. They're like faces and they know their bodies. They know how they have to replenish. But generally for the, the novice, that's a good place to start. And the novice probably isn't going to go out there, you know, and crunch out a try and, and, and right. get uh, heat exhaust, exhaustion. So if they just are pretty good about their hydration, that, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Yep. All right, Dr. Chase Wilson, how do people get a hold of you? Good question. Uh, so we uh, we have a, <laughs> who knows, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because he is a volunteer wildcare uh, gamecock. He's all one, whatever that exactly. is. Exactly. <laughs> no, we uh, we do have a, a really good website. Our uh, our administration has done a really wonderful job with our website. Uh, you can find uh, uh, my practice and me at uh, www.tocdocs. D-O-C-S dot com. Um, and uh, the, there can be, uh, you, you can chat with someone on there. Uh, you can send an email from there. Uh, you can schedule an appointment directly from there. Uh, phone numbers uh, can be found uh, on that website as well to specific offices. Uh, but the, uh, the, the main telephone number to our office is 865-524-5365. So if you'd rather talk to someone in person rather than uh, use the electronic means, uh, we're certainly happy to, to help you with that as well. All right, Nate Gibson, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, you can actually go on the website for corephysicaltherapy.com. Uh, you can look at the map and you can pick out White Pine or Morristown, or you can reach me at our clinic phone number at 865-674-7454. All right, you guys were wonderful. Thank you very much. Great conversation. Dr. Rick, you knocked it out of the park again. I mean, I, I mean, again. No, these guys were superstars tonight. This, this, and this is so informative. It's so important. It's a problem. It is. It is. My son just, uh, he was doing some work outside. He had to come on in. He was uh, getting dizzy. It was, you know, of course, it's 150 degrees down here in Louisiana. <laughs> 100, 150% humidity. You're just sort of swimming around in the doggone yeah. stuff, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys, and, and everyone. Thank you very much for joining In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. We're going to come back with another great interview shortly.